stage of the Mark Hellinger Theater in New York City. You will see scenes from the three musical nominees for the theater's highest award, Coco, Hurley, and now with Bonnie Franklin, the title song from Applause, the new hit show all about the fabulous, glamorous, successful people of the world of show business. All right, welcome back to My Little Tony's. A year that nobody is excited about. I feel like this is one of the bigger stinkers that we've done in uh, quite some time. Yeah, we've been uh, postponing this episode for so long because I think neither of us are, you know, there's just like, there's nothing really exciting about this season. I know this is not really getting anyone hyped to listen to this. (laughs) There's nothing I'm looking forward to here except, you know, having a nice discussion with you. I mean, you know, I feel like as I was getting into it, I mean, it was like, there's some uh, redeeming qualities to it. But overall, it's a pretty strange season especially in between like two very like eventful seasons I guess yeah exactly because we were sort of talking amongst ourselves if it was a dumb idea to do 1970 so soon after we did 1969 Um, but it really is like night and day in terms of what it has to offer both in terms of the season and also the Tonys itself because I thought this Tonys absolutely sucked yeah (laughs) so I know we say this for all like the early 70s Tonys but it was really um not very good the only good things i thought were the pearly performances yeah i will also say that it was like very easy it was like very palatable and i feel like it was almost like didactic in a way that like i just feel like everything was like so explained like down to how they vote for the tonys to like them explaining like what chewing the scenery meant um so like in some ways i'm like okay i kind of i kind of appreciate what they're doing i feel like it's it doesn't feel like inside baseball i also liked that all of the speeches were very short this year everyone was really like in and out ken howard's best featured actor in a play speech he was basically like there are a lot of people you feel you should thank at this time but i feel i should especially thank uh the admissions officers of uh, several law schools who inadvertently encouraged me to go into this business a few years ago. <laughs> Thank you all very much. And then he just kind of walks off stage. <laughs> yeah, I love that speech. My uh, my notes for this ceremony suck because I was very disengaged. But um, okay, let's let's give some stats. So this was the 24th annual Tony Awards. They were broadcast on April 19th, 1970. Um, once again from the Mark Hellinger Theater. It was hosted by Julie Andrews, Shirley MacLaine, and Walter Matthau. And Shirley MacLaine, her hair in this era was very like Ethel Merman. I thought I was, you know, squinting to be like, is that, who is that? Yeah, and yeah, I feel like it's like a, she was like wearing a disguise. Yeah, and none of them sang, which was disappointing. So we're going to do this. We're going to try to do this all in one episode because there were only three musicals nominated for Best Musical and none of them are really um, anything very important, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. Um, And they all have one word titles, which is, uh, you know, an interesting coincidence. So we have applause. So actually, the biggest winner was a play this year. It was was um, Child's Play, which had six wins or yeah six noms and five wins and then for the musicals applause was the best musical winner with 11 nominations and four wins then coco with seven nominations and two wins and pearly with five nominations and two wins 
And then there were a bunch of special Tonys. Actually, they give out the best musical Tony like 20 minutes before the show ends. And then they do like all of these special Tonys. Yeah. Um, which is kind and of interesting. The, yeah, they give like the best play out like 10 minutes before the best musical. It That was like actually the point when I really kind of fell off with it where I'm like, so what are we supposed to do for like the next 20 minutes? (laughs) Although I did actually enjoy this, like the special Tonys were given to some very special people. (laughs) No, they really were. It was amazing. (laughs) Especially following up 1969, like Joe Papp didn't get his dues, but they like basically did give the New York Shakespeare Festival slash him this Tony to kind of make up for hair getting snubbed the year before. I know. And then and they had Clive Barnes presenting it, which is like, I think might be the first time we've seen like a critic at the Tonys. It is sometimes very difficult to find the exact words to use about our next uh, guest. You see, oh, I'm in trouble already. Does one say that he's unusually perceptive? Or blind as a bat. (laughs) Is he really tuned in or overly indulgent? Well, I don't know. I'm very fond of him, but then I... I didn't do a play this year. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, what theatrical evening would be complete... (laughs) without a critic to sum it up? From the New York Times, your friendly neighborhood drama critic... Mr. Clive Bonds. Which means that, uh, you know, we uh, we have a chance to present one day. Yes. <laughs> and and Joe Papp takes a little swipe at him, which I thought was fun. <clears throat> I'm not a sadist by nature, but I love to see Clive Bonds sweat a little bit. <laughs> oh, and the other thing that was weird about this ceremony is that the nominated musicals performed multiple times applause and Pearly performed two separate numbers, like very separated in the ceremony, which is something I've never seen before. They were like, and now another song from Pearly. I feel like that's weird just because like when Coco was performing, I was like, this is the first time that I've ever seen like such a large straight scene from a musical he (laughs) performed. And I didn't really understand that like, you know, both of the other shows would like perform again. Well, also, the Coco performance was pre-recorded, and Catherine Hepburn did not come to the Tonys. She did not. She didn't want to do it live, so that oh. might also be why. <laughs> My God, that's crazy! I didn't realize that. Yeah, I didn't realize it either. I just saw it elsewhere. They did a good job hiding it. But yeah, so I think the notable thing about this season that we've sort of been talking around is that this had two um, sort of classic film powerhouse you know, diva star women uh, making their musical debuts in not very good musicals. <laughs> Neither of them are very good singers. Um, and, you know, as a as a low-voiced woman who can't sing, I felt incredibly <laughs> represented in this season in a way that I never have before. But, uh, you know, I sort of also didn't like it. But <laughs> there, was a, there was an interesting article about how, like, the use of the microphone for live theater has like is what's led to um like non-singing actors being able to perform in musicals and i thought it was you know interesting with you know this discussion that continues to be had to this day like sort of um examining it like at the beginning of it so i just wanted to read a little bit of it 
Declining standards and escalating costs have already made musicals less of an art form and more of a wildcat venture. To raise the cash to get started, much less remain open. Producers often must sign up a star. Yet increasingly these days, the performers the public knows best have not gained fame or honed their technique by meeting the standards of the stage. They've made their names in those two bastard children technology begot upon theater, the movies and TV. I'm aware that much theater-trained talent works in both. I'm also aware that one needs no stage technique at all to perform wonders in media founded upon the principle of the retake. Nor does one need that rare quality awkwardly described as projection, where there is a device like the close-up. Technology's most pernicious contribution to the theater has been the microphone. Like every byproduct of progress, it immediately creates dependence upon it. Because movies and TV use hypersensitive mics, vocal training was not required to perform in either. People became stars because of their faces, bosoms, freckles, or behinds, rarely for a well-produced, pleasant, and sturdy voice. As a result, many movies and TV stars need that little old mic set out there before them when a Broadway producer brings them east to do a show. And because that little old mic has spread like a cancerous growth among our footlights, performers with drastically limited experience in musicals go merrily into the most demanding roles, confident that their voices will reach us. And God help us, they do. Catherine Hepburn and Lauren Bacall possess charisma in abundance. They displayed it on Broadway, too, without microphones, before they starred in Coco and Applause, respectively. Neither had tried a musical, though. I fear their doing so can be blamed on their producer's faith in their names and his mics, as well as their own misreading of the success of others who had a go at song and dance. Before I left Coco and Applause, I was filled with admiration for their star's pluck. I departed feeling relief at their having done as splendidly as they did. Such are the satisfactions our musicals now deliver, instead of that blissful glow one gets seeing a performer meet a challenge head on. So, you know, uh, that kind of sums it up, I guess. Let's like, I don't really get what's in it for either of them. I don't know. I think, you know, both of their careers had kind of hit a stalling uh-huh. point. And so they were like, well, let's try this. Actually, um, in the Broadway Babies book, Ethan Morden has like an interesting, I mean, before we get into um, talking about applause, he like compares it to Hello Dolly in a way, which I think talking about both shows, this is kind of like an interesting way to sort of like enter it. He says that like with applause, like so much of the action is kind of happening around like Lauren Bacall playing Margot Channing. And it just like kind of feels like in both cases, like both of these actresses are just kind of like plunked on the stage and like everything's kind of like happening around them. I think that was especially the case for Coco too, like (laughs) literally. But yeah, so let's start with the winner and also um, the big hit of the season. The big hit in a week season, um, Applause, which opened March 30th, 1970, closed July 27th, 1972, after 896 performances, music by Charles Strauss, lyrics by Lee Adams, book by Betty Comden and Adolph Green, directed and choreographed by Ron Field, and based on the 1950 film All About Eve and the original story by Mary Orr. So it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Performance by Leading Actress in a Musical for Lauren Bacall, Best Direction of a Musical for Ron Field, Best Choreography for Ron Field, Best Performance by a Leading Actor for Len Carriou, Best Performance by a Featured Actor for Brandon Maggart, Best Performance by a Featured Actress for Bonnie Franklin and Penny Fuller, Best Scenic Design for Robert Randolph, Best Costume Design for Ray Ag- Agayan, and Best Lighting Design for Theron Musser, or Muser. And it won Musical... Lauren Bacall won Best Actress, and Ron Field won both Best Direction and Best Choreography. And the synopsis is, in the late 1960s, Margot Channing is a Broadway star. However, she secretly is paranoid about her age. Soon, an ambitious chorus girl, Eve, warms up to her. 
However, the admiring chorus girl quickly becomes Margot's worst enemy in competition. Eve ends up understudying for Margot and then sabotages her so that she could perform the role in front of the important critics. In the end, Eve becomes a star and Margot's career is fading. However, Margot realizes that she can still find happiness in the man she loves, Bill. <laughs> uh, that That is a plot twist that a lot of people had a problem with. Yeah. So this was Charles Strauss's idea, and he started thinking about it in the early 60s, but he didn't really um, start working on it in like in earnest until 1967. And they had a lot of trouble getting the movie rights for this, but they did get the rights to the original short story, which was from a 1946 issue of Cosmopolitan magazine called The Wisdom of Eve, um, which is fairly different from the movie. Um, and apparently Margot Channing's name in the original story is Margola Cranston, which is <laughs> a, a good choice to uh, make that change. So they hired the playwright Sidney Michaels to be the book writer, but it wasn't working out. And um, when they got Lauren Bacall involved, so this is interesting. This is a little he said, she said. So one version is that Lauren Bacall was not happy with the book and she's close friends with Comden and Green and she was like, I want them to do it. But in her memoir, she's like, oh, I don't know what happened. They were just like, we're going to fire Sidney Michaels. How do you feel about us bringing Comden and Green? And of course I was excited because I love them. So <laughs> it's like, you know, I think it's probably, it was probably her. <laughs> yeah, it was, probably it was her. her. Um, Charles Strauss in his memoir um, claims that she was upset set because Sydney Michaels wouldn't write to her like cadence I guess she's like you know how I talk like why don't you write this <laughs> script like that you know you don't have to act with me Steve you don't have to say anything and you don't have to do anything not a thing oh maybe just whistle you know how to whistle don't you Steve you just put your lips together and blow which, like, is funny because that's really one of the only times I feel like his version of the story that she was really kind of a diva about things. Mm -hmm. With that, um, Comden and Green came in. This was the first time that they had written a book without also writing the lyrics. So, like, mm -hmm. I guess there had been situations where they had written lyrics but not written the book before. And um, I think that so much of the early period of the show was them just trying to figure out like how to like make it different from the movie and like fix things with the story but like not use like conventions that the movie used to kind of like kind of fix them and you'll kind of like once um you know watching the show um and kind of like hearing the synopsis you're just like wait a minute like why would they you know why where did this gay hairdresser character yeah. come from um and it was like kind of Comden and Green working through the source material because like you know the sort of like gay hairdresser in the movie was Margot's like dressing room assistant Bertie who's like so famously played by Thelma Ritter yeah I would say that probably one of my least favorite things about the show is the book yeah it's bad and it's like updated to the 70s which is a, a tough time to be doing a contemporary story about like I don't know people this age yeah it was just like so funny to hear like Eve be like yeah my husband he died in Vietnam like not that that's funny but like it was just like a very it just like seemed like mixing of moments in like a way that just didn't feel right yeah and like Something I didn't really think about is that, like, the original movie is almost two and a half hours long on its own, which is, like, mm -hmm. 
the length of a musical, which is like, you know, it's sort of like the opposite process that you normally go through when adapting a movie where you have to sort of like figure out which moments to like expand because, you know, generally it's shorter, but this is like, you have to figure out what to cut, what to expand, like where you're going to condense things, where you're going to, you know, it's, uh, it seems like a more difficult process, especially since they like didn't get the rights to the movie until the very last second. And then they added the one thing, I think the one thing they added was the song, um, fasten your seatbelts, which is based on, you know, Betty Davis's, uh, you know, famous line from the movie. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. which I thought was a horrible song. I hated this so much. I like, <laughs> so they, they made a TV movie of it. I think it, they filmed it in London in 1973. And it is, must be abridged because it, I think it's only about an hour and 45 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. But I that I had I don't know if I was just in like a bad mood, but I had such a bad time watching it. I was like, that was something that made me be like, do I even like musicals? Like, <laughs> I really had a moment of of reckoning. I didn't like any of it, and that's kind of uh, <laughs> colored my whole experience with um, you know re- the research for this. Especially like you know I have to believe that Lauren Bacall was like live. Her performance was good. Because she is not selling it in that TV movie. It is really, really, uh, really over the top. Yeah, I feel like I haven't seen something that bad in like a very... (laughs) um, And our good old friend Alexander H. Cohen was the producer of it. And I think that Ron Field directed it. Yeah. Um, also not to be mean about it, but his I feel like his choreography is also not good (laughs) it's just very i think it's just very literal and i think that that's kind of maybe the problem with a lot of it is that like so much of it is like very very literal where it's like you know fasten your seatbelt it's like people reaching around their waist (laughs) also the the title number applause which they which is one of the songs they perform on the tonys i just uh, was like this is one of the worst things (laughs) and like you know it made a star out of bonnie franklin is it that we're living for? Applause, applause. Nothing I know brings on the glow like sweet applause. You're thinking you're through that nobody cares. Then suddenly you And apparently it was like kind of a big hit. They like released it as a single. Um, but it's one of those songs that it's like, you know, it has one idea and then they try to sort of expand it into a showstopper by like incorporating references to like other better shows, which is like, well, you know, you're in trouble when you're doing that. Bonnie Gold. Oh, 
comment on the on the Tony upload that's like the song applause is like Lovey Bohem from Rent except much worse. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah, I mean when she makes her funny girl reference in it during the Tonys, I'm like I feel so bad for Barbara that she has to like sit through and watch this happen. <laughs> I know, and it goes on for so long. It's like I was cringing the whole time. I really did not enjoy it. And also, I will say that having the song, this song applause, be the opening number, like throughout the Tonys, like really kind of instills this like Pee Wee's Playhouse thing of like whenever <laughs> anyone says applause, I'm like, <laughs> the word of the day is applause. Yeah. <laughs> thought it was very strange that they had Lauren Bacall and the Tonys with Welcome to the Theater and it's like why don't you open with that song exactly then it auto played to the 1971 Tonys and she does open that Tonys by bursting through a paper Tony and say and singing Welcome to the Theater which is like it reminds me of when like the year that um, Book of Mormon was up for the Tonys and everyone was like oh obviously they're gonna open the Tonys by doing hello and they didn't but then the next year they did (laughs) it's like sometimes the most obvious choice is the right one you know you don't have to try to like and there's like a little bit of course correction where it's like well maybe we should have done that yeah I feel like that was like they present best musical it's like okay like why are we still here it's like we're doing these special Tonys and then to end with like welcome to the theater it's like um and I don't think that like it doesn't completely not make sense to have applause after everyone's just been applauding for hours (laughs) to um, be the closing number. Also, um, you know, speaking of Lauren McCall in that song, like I know she talks about how she was going through like vocal training. And this isn't even about like the quality of her voice because like when you hear someone like Elaine Stritch sing, like obviously it's rough, but there's like technique behind it. Hearing her sing, it's like, is your voice about to go out like right now? Like, how are you able to sustain like shouting like this? Welcome to the theater. Like, I think that, like, what everyone is sort of, like, saying about her is that, like, she's not, like, a good singer, but that she's, like, very musical in the way that she speaks. And, like, I think that several people kind of uh, compared her to Rex Harrison. She just has, like, a very natural rhythm and good intonation. And I guess this is the quote. So I guess he, so Charles Strauss kind of like worked with her on three songs and like, you know, once she signed on, he was just like, let's get you comfortable with this. He said that she had kind of told this story that the only other time she had ever sang in public was, would be like at parties, but she would make sure that she was like friends with the piano player and that like, you know, it would be like really smoky and everyone would be drunk so that like no one would really catch her if she fucked it up. But she had also, she did also sing in a couple of her like very early movies, right? She sings into Have and Have Not. Maybe you're meant to be mine. Maybe I'm only supposed to stay in your arms a while. As others have done. Is this what I've waited for? Am I the one? Oh, okay. Well, Mr. Charles Strauss seems to <laughs> have his wires crossed then. She sings in the big sleep also, but maybe she was dubbed here. 
it sounds like her. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> not to get not to get too derailed. Um, you know, if you're in classic Hollywood, they were going to try to make you sing at least once. There were a couple of, uh, you know, interesting replacements. They did a little stunt casting with Ann Baxter, who played Eve in the original movie, came back to play Margot, and apparently she was very good. Um, they tried to get Rita Hayworth to do it, um, but she was having a lot of trouble learning her lines, and then it turned out she was suffering from um, early-onset Alzheimer's. I know. Everyone was like, she's drunk, and... <laughs> Well, there was a very rude article that was like, like most Hollywood actresses, Mr. Kasha said, she's a slow learner because they've never been required to learn scripts fast. She's been watching the show and suddenly realized that there was a lot more to it than she'd expected. So they were like, she's going to go back home to Hollywood and, uh, you know, work on it. And then maybe she's going to like head up a national tour or whatever. But obviously that didn't happen. So Bonnie Franklin, as we mentioned, she became a star um, and they were trying to sort of play her against Lauren Bacall or, you know, quote unquote, a star. She ended up, you know, having TV success and coming back to host the Tonys from inside <laughs> of her mind in the late 70s. She's so cute, though. She's like, really cute. Comparing her to the person who plays the role in the TV movie, I thought that she was really cute. Yeah, it's bad. But um, they like they did a little profile of her where she just is like such a little like perky sprite like she really seems like a caricature and I thought this was kind of a funny quote hey Bonnie Chortle jumping up and derailing her train of thought you know what I've even been asked to do a playboy spread I just fell on the floor and laughed I mean she explained delightedly it was sweet of them but I just don't have the boobs for that you know it seemed a good as time as any to ask what she thought of nudity in the theater Nudity's fine if it's necessary, she said firmly, but not if it goes to extremes. I don't mind watching it, but I can't really see myself doing it. And then there are the worst examples, like the raunchy way the guys were behaving on stage in hair when I saw it in Los Angeles. Who needs it? It's just unattractive, that's all. But like they were, you know, they were trying to set her up as sort of like the Eve to Lauren Bacall's Margot. Uh, you know, like the, you oh, know, she was she, she was upstaging her, but apparently Lauren or it's funny because Lauren Bacall's real name is Betty, but it seemed like she continued to go by Betty in her personal life like forever because everyone who's talking about her is calling her Betty. <laughs> yeah, Charles Strauss says that too. Charles Strauss, Bonnie Franklin calls her that, Comden and Green, but she's like, uh, you know, I talked to Betty and Betty was like, don't worry about it. I know what, you know, they're just trying to pit, or, you know, pit us against each other. Aww. So they didn't fall for it. But yeah, so Walter Kerr fucking loved it. He wrote, applause is a rock solid success for half a dozen reasons. Lauren Bacall, Betty Compton, Adolph Green, Len Carreyou, Ann Williams, Bonnie Franklin, and Ron Field among them, just to make seven. And you won't have to wait until the second act to find that out. As you do slip into the second act, though, I think you'll suddenly become aware of just how dimensional the whole slam bang carnival has become. How unusually personal and troubled its plot and people have grown while you were merely sitting there enjoying yourself. This is how he describes Lauren Bacall, which is not how she comes across in the TV movie. Miss Bacall sidesteps nothing, narrowing her eyes until they glitter as dirtily as a sharp piece of glass on a lawn you're roaming barefoot, roaring out her rage with the impassioned hurt of a spoiled child, springing into abandoned dance to express everything from foolish benevolence to fasten your seatbelt's fury. She is Medea, Medusa, and Theta Bera combined and dyed blonde. Though she gives over whole scenes and numbers to other people, some very good other people, she seems at all times to stand astride the show, hair flying straight up, a genie emerging from a tree trunk with arms stretched like branches to embrace and overshadow and shelter everything within sight. Take your breath away, indeed. What's more, she never gives it back. I want to believe that that's true, but I feel like with this material, that's not possible. Well, the interesting thing is, unlike Coco, this show ended up having a life once she left. So mm -hmm. at least uh, there was something there besides her. And apparently there was 
was a 1996 paper mill production slash tour that was sort of heavily revised. And the biggest thing is that they uh, took out the song at the end where she's like, I don't care about my career, I just want to be your woman. A theater full of strangers adoring you blindly. There's something greater, there's something greater. The friends who know you're lonely and treat you too kindly. There's something greater, there's something greater. There's needing to be where he is. Waking up and there he is. Being to your man what a woman should be. Which yeah. is not uh, a sentiment that I think people would support now. And it was talking about coming to Broadway, like uh, Anne Ranking choreographed it, Tommy Toon like oversaw it, but it never, uh, it never made it back. In Charles Strauss's book, I think he is kind of like writing about it as they were like preparing to get like a revival together. And he said that you know that when they were out of town with it, once they finally got it into working order, that no one like people liked it, but like people weren't like loving it. And he said as soon as they like changed the ending to this like you know she chooses the man over her career, like everyone just started going crazy for it. You know they were just like, well, I guess that's that. <laughs> that's what they want. And then apparently Charles Strauss said in a radio interview in 2017 that um, they were preparing for Audra to come in a revival of it, which seems like just wishful thinking on his part and also like a real waste of Audra. She would be playing uh, Margot? Yeah. I would watch her in an All About Eve musical that was just like a totally new adaptation of it written for someone who can sing. Well, I guess like the interesting thing about All About Eve is that it is a movie that's like so much about the theater, but I feel like then taking that movie and then making it theater again, but then like having to remove some of like the successful elements from the movie, I just feel like it gets kind of like muddled muddled and also it's like you kind of know the whole time like what the arc of it is and it's like i don't think it's like that interesting to like kind of see what happens yeah they should just do showgirls yeah (laughs) if they really really want to take on that story it also feels like the movie all about eve feels more suited to opera than to like a traditional musical like this and i think Mm -hmm. that in kind of thinking about that charles strauss writes about how there was so much pressure to make it like a rock musical and to like incorporate (laughs) elements of rock and i will say that you know there is like a fair amount of like Burt Bacharachy pop elements to it but like I guess he had just come off of Superman which like this score and that score feels really feel really akin to one another yeah he was like you know Bye Bye Birdie was like satire and like I couldn't I can't write real rock like that's not me and he's like I'm not Led Zeppelin and it's like (laughs) that is very true you know it's good (laughs) self-awareness so there was also there was an Encores production in 2008 starring Actually, another kind of fun casting gimmick, it was starring Christine Ebersole and then her Grey Gardens co-star Aaron Davey playing Eve. But Ben Brantley was like, the only exciting thing about this is that like Christine Ebersole is extremely ill with the flu. And like, you know, the excitement is coming from seeing if she can like make it through. His quote is, before I respond to these urgent questions, oh, all right, she was great. Let me add that this production, which runs through Sunday, almost instantly answered the usual big question posed by the Encore series of vintage American musicals. Is this a show that is more than a period piece, a work designed to outlast the era of its birth, I say regretfully but emphatically, no. 
<laughs> so Ben Brantley wasn't sold. I feel like if they played it right, I mean, it's kind of insane. I mean, it's not even like, you know, it's like a bad book, but a great score. It's like the score isn't even very good. You know, it's like what <laughs> what is worthwhile about this show besides the, the source material and, you know, like a great older actress, yeah. you know, vehicle. It's like nothing. And there are much better shows that are that kind of vehicle. Especially too, because I think that like, on top of the all about Eve plotline, they kind of b- bring in this like sort of like ode to show business. And like, this is like the showbiz life of, you know, they use the term gypsies to like talk about like Broadway background dancers offensively. <laughs> but, you know, then kind of like a chorus line comes around a few years later and actually does like do a good job like centering those people in a new type of Broadway show. So I will say though that I think that this might be the first like openly gay musical character. Well, this this and Coco had the first two yeah. in the in the same season, and both were uh, not so good. <laughs> I think this one is a little bit better. This one is like not as offensive as I could have imagined it to be. Yeah, um, and not as offensive as Coco, the evil one, <laughs> Coco. <laughs> yeah. All right. Should we? Uh, do we have anything more to say about this? I think we can keep it moving, right? Two things I need to say. Speaking of hairdressers, so apparently Ron Field was balding, and like he was like getting like hair plugs like before hair plugs were like as advanced as they are now. So like apparently he went to like his hairdresser like every day and was like getting his hair replaced like strand by strand. <laughs> um, but anyways, <laughs> when they were trying to figure out the title for the show, he was like talking to his hairdresser about it and he was like you can't call it applause because everyone's gonna see the title applause and they're gonna think it says applesauce um and then everyone was like freaking out and like charles strauss had a plumber over his house doing work and he like wrote it down on a piece of paper and he's like tell me what you think this says and the plumber was like it says applause that is insane because i know they went through a bunch of different titles and even before this it was going to be called applause applause and then they just cut it down to one applause but i didn't realize there was such like are people going to be able to read it that's wild i know and i guess two other things so when they were doing out of town in baltimore uh like they someone from look magazine was like doing like a big feature on lauren bacall in the opening of the show and then after one of the previews he came backstage and they were like so what did you think and he was like it was uh interesting and lauren bacall was like fuck you and then apparently he like totally changed his tune and like wrote a really glowing piece about well it. maybe that was the piece they were talking about that tried that sort of cherry picked bonnie franklin's quotes to make it seem like she was trying to undermine lauren bacall because that new york Times piece referenced a recent magazine article about applause oh interesting so yeah I, and and i they didn't say which magazine so i was like i'm never gonna find that but maybe that is what it was i think the only other thing i mean this might be like our what do you want to save oh i can't believe uh yeah we almost forgot so how do we want to say this they this was this had a very very long out of town tryout and one of the things that changed was that they fired the original eve diane mcafee but she ended up um getting involved with Brandon Maggart, one of the other stars, and they ended up having a couple of kids, one of whom is Fiona Apple. 
So uh, applause, applause gave us Fiona Apple. And I think that's the best thing that we can, uh, we can thank it for. <laughs> she was playing Eve and she was like 21 years old and just like too sweet. And they were like, we need someone like more conniving to play against. <laughs> yeah, Lauren, Lauren Bacall. Bacall, we don't believe you're a threat <laughs> to Lauren Bacall. <laughs> yeah, and then they promised her the role, the role in the tour, which I think that she did. But yeah, I feel like he was kind of all over the place in the 70s. He was also in Lorelei. And- also, this was like his third family (laughs) (laughs) so that and then also lauren bacall is like doing chico chic at the tonys before chico chic was really yes she's wearing an insane outfit she's wearing like a almost ankle length dress with like matching slacks underneath it and like a scarf like a scarf choker but like she pulls it off because she's you know fabulous but it's like what and then when she comes out in her like applause costume, it's like, yes, this is what I want to see you in. I want to yeah. see you in this like sparkly black dress. Not, Not like, like... A, a sweatsuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does look very cozy, though. I feel like she had to knew she had she had to know she had it in the bag when Catherine Hepburn was like, I'm not even going to come. Well, she's the only person they cut to in the audience because I guess yeah. there was only two other nominees and one of them was not there. But she like does like a who me. I just can't believe it. I've never held one of these things before. <laughs> I can only tell you that this show was put together with a great deal of love. and That's what I was always taught the theater was about. And it's, uh, it's the first prize I've ever gotten. <laughs> and I do feel that everyone connected with applause owns a little piece of it. And I thank you all very much. She definitely comes off better than Katherine Hepburn, um, personality-wise, in this uh, yeah, totally. the story of this season. of Katherine Hepburn. Let's move on to Coco. Coco. Coco opened on December 18th, 1969 and closed October 3rd, 1970 after 329 performances. Music by Andre Previn. Lyric and book by Alan J. Lerner. Directed by Michael Bentall. Choreographed by Michael Bennett. And it was based on the life of Coco Chanel. Synopsis. Set between early autumn of 1953 and late spring of 1954, fashion designer Coco Chanel, after 15 years of retirement, decides to return to the world of haute couture and reopen her Paris salon. With her new collection derided by the critics, she faces bankruptcy until buyers from four major American department stores place orders with her. She becomes involved with the love life of one of her models and flashbacks utilizing film sequences recall her own past romantic flings adding humor to the proceedings is a highly stereotypical rude gay designer who tries to impede (laughs) chanel's success the finale is a fashion show featuring actual chanel designs from 1918 to 1959 and it was nominated for best musical best actress in a musical for katherine hepburn uh best featured actor in a musical for renee abad I think it's Abergenois. That's it. Yeah, I even paid special note to it when I when they read. It's it's hard. I mean, I remember when we started this, we were like, we're gonna look up everyone's last names first and make sure we say it right, and then it's like, we can't do that. We're just gonna do our best. (laughs) 
uh, best featured actor in a musical, uh, George Rose, best costume design, Cecil Beaton, best choreography, Michael Bennett, and best direction of a musical, Michael Benthal. It won two, best featured actor in a musical for Rene Abajanois, <laughs> and uh, best costume design for Cecil Beaton. Which I was kind of confused about because this part that says like the finale of it was at like a fashion show. So like, and he in his speeches was like, I had like a fabulous inspiration. This is simply spiffing. <laughs> I'm very lucky to get this. I'm lucky because I don't think any other designer has ever had such a marvelous inspiration to work to as Mademoiselle Coco Chanel. So, like, did he just make Coco Chanel designs? I guess. I mean, they said that $150,000 of the budget went to the costumes. So I I guess he reinterpreted them. Uh But I want to open this up with the return of everyone's favorite segment. (laughs) Is this good for the juice? So this show is about Coco Chanel returning to fashion in sort of the early mid 50s after being retired for 15 years. And it seems like it is a little bit coy about why she retired. So looking at this timeline, in 1940, the Nazis occupied Paris and she immediately moved into the Hotel Ritz, which was their base of operations. And she had an affair with Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage, who was a high-ranking Nazi spy. So for a long time, it was sort of ambiguous whether she was like, you know, quote-unquote, just a Nazi sympathizer. But about 10 years ago, this guy, Hal Vaughn, published a book called Sleeping with the Enemy that basically just like laid out all the evidence that she herself was a Nazi spy. And so the Chanel estate was like, why are you trying to slander her like this? And he was like, I literally wasn't even looking for this. I was like trying to do research on another project. And I like saw a reference to her being a Nazi spy. And as soon as I like followed the thread, it was like there was just so much evidence. So she was... 100% involved in Nazi espionage. And so when the war was over, she fled to Switzerland to, you know, avoid prosecution. And basically, um, through the help of Winston Churchill, she was, she, you know, never faced consequences. And then she kind of like slunk back to France and reopened her business, which is where this musical picks up. So I'm going to say, I know at this point, all of this probably was not clear, but um, I'm going to say this musical is not good for the Jews. And I'm introducing a follow-up segment, which is, is this person in hell? (laughs) And I'm going to say, yes, she is definitely in hell next to P.T. Barnum and Thomas Jefferson, other (laughs) beloved musical theater characters. The interesting thing, I mean, interesting in a fucked up way, is that like a big criticism of this show is that like her life is not exciting enough to be a musical and it's like yeah because the most interesting part that she was literally a nazi spy um is understandably not included in this also that it's about her love life and i'm assuming baron hans gunther von dinklage was not included in that uh (laughs) that lineup of her ex-boyfriends yeah i just feel like even what we get from the performance which like they do like a 10 minute book scene of like it's just (laughs) like a bunch i know it's just like a bunch of people being like but coco i love him and she's like no (laughs) it's not good Everyone pretty much hated it, except for Katherine Hepburn and the choreography. One of my favorite parts of the review, Clive Barnes was like, there is an advertisement in the current playbill that says rather cheekily, wouldn't you rather be in Vegas? I had always imagined that Devil's Island apart, 
There was no place I would rather not be in than Las Vegas. There were one or two moments in the first act here when I began to wonder whether that verdict had been a little hasty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he did not like it. So basically this idea had been kicking around for a long time. Like uh, Lerner had wanted to do it since I think the late 50s. And he, you know, it took him, it just took forever for Chanel to agree to do it because she was still alive at this point. And so he immediately low was like, I don't want to do this. So he, Lerner kind of like cycled through a bunch of different collaborators until he ended up with Andre Previn, who um, he knew because Andre Previn had done like the musical direction and conducting for the My Fair Lady and Gigi movies. So he was like, you know, this guy gets it. I will say that this is like, I could tell based on what you had to say about applause that you hated the score but i feel like this is like so offensively boring in a way that i listened to the cast recording twice and i literally don't remember one song it's really bad and like i apparently i think they finally remastered it but apparently it has a reputation as one of like the worst produced cast albums also i didn't really notice that when i was listening so maybe they did finally fix it but everyone's like it sounds like they're inside a tin can but it's like you know there's nothing really good happening in that tin can so who cares so the the funny quote from from Chanel when she was told that Catherine Hepburn was going to be playing her. She was like, I loved her in Ondine. It's like, no, wrong Hepburn. They, they also had a lot of trouble um, casting her. And apparently the producer, hold on, what was the producer's name? Frederick Brisson or Brisson. Um, and he had been a co-producer on a lot of hits, but this was his first like lead producer show. And he really wanted his wife to play the lead and his wife was Rosalind Russell and she was quoted in the New York Times in the late 60s being like yes I'm coming to Broadway with this the role was written for me and then something happened and in an article about the opening night where you know Rosalind Russell was there obviously because she's still the producer's wife the question of why Catherine Hepburn and not she as originally reported is appearing as Coco Chanel brought a categorical denial that Miss Russell had ever agreed to play the part I mean honestly I feel like she would be a better choice for this she's kind of along the same lines you know what's funny is they were like we do not want to cast a French person because you cannot have anyone with an accent on Broadway yeah that's something that I was like very much I'm like isn't the whole point that she's French I guess they learned their lesson from uh, Can Can. <laughs> but she was replaced by Danielle Derieux, who was French and apparently was a lovely singer. And the first time, apparently the first time Lerner heard her singing the song, she was like, hey, did you know you wrote a musical to Andre Previn? And they, they released a single of her singing one of the songs, but nobody wanted it. Through the winter night, now she dims the light from the Always, 
basically what happened is that it did very well at the box office. It was the most expensive musical of all time at that point. It cost $900,000. But as soon as Katherine Hepburn left the show, it closed immediately. So she agreed to come back and do the tour and it ended up recouping through the tour, which is uh, nice of her. Yeah. And I think it was the largest box office advance in history up until this point. Yeah. People were really excited for her. I mean, yeah, I don't know. She's (laughs) never really done it for me. She seems like a strange choice for uh, this part. Yeah. I mean, I just think that this is like something that really just didn't need to be a musical. No. I feel like Pearly and Applause, the other two musicals of this season, like do have people who are like, oh, they're misunderstood, but no one is ever bringing up Coco. No. And I think the other major thing about this show is that it was, you know, Michael Bennett's follow-up to Promises, Promises. And so Michael Benthal had sort of this pre-existing relationship with Katherine Hepburn, but had never directed a musical and was like totally out of his league and was sort of like devolving into alcoholism. So Michael Bennett basically like ghost directed the show. um, And he was like, you know, it sort of gave him experience and confidence. And he also working with Katherine Hepburn, he learned how to manipulate people, which was something that really came in handy (laughs) later in his career. So this is a quote from Bob Avian. There's a funny story about Hepburn. She's very opinionated, thinks she knows everything, says she knows everything. And of course, everything has to go her way. Her townhouse is on the east side next to Steve Sondheim's. Get this. She's doing Coco at at the Hellinger, and he's writing the score for Company. They're both home, and he's playing the piano, playing the piano, playing the piano. Hepburn throws up her window, leans out with a broom, sees him at the keyboard, taps his window with the broom, and shouts, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Stop banging that goddamn piano! Yeah, I think that this is like an instance where like the Tony season and the actual theater season get fuzzy, but company opened like a month after applause and like quickly kind of like became like the toast of the town. Yeah. Um, I mean, compared to everything else that's going on, it's like, (laughs) it's a big difference. And I think that kind of on the subject of like rock and roll, this is like another score that I think that, you know, Lerner was probably being like, do I need to get with the times? And like Andre Previn is kind of like a young person who's uh, like of a dying breed. But um, in this article where about them working together, they kind of both are interviewed. Alan and I get along very well, Mr. Previn said. Thank goodness we do. They say Gilbert and Sullivan weren't even on speaking terms. I don't know how they did it. Mr. Previn noted that his music for Coco would have a European motif. Music today is so strangely divided, Mr. Lerner injected. I never remember a time when the sort of music you hear on the radio was so different from the music in the theater. Mr. Lerner said he disliked rock and roll, but rather admired its vitality and the intensity of the search for a new sound. Rock and roll lyrics reflect, in his opinion, a revolt against language. He said that he had a number of ideas for possible new musicals coming up. This is how he describes his working pattern. He struggles with an idea for a few months, puts it aside for two years or so, then tries to get a hold of it again. I wish I didn't have to work that way, but I do, he says. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like Andre Previn is like his latest person he's vampiring off of. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. I mean, you know, we talked about in our My Fair Lady episode how he's worked with like a bunch of different people, but Lowe never worked with anyone but him. All of his successes were with Lowe, and actually his memoir only covers his three big hits, which were My Fair Lady, Camelot, and Gigi, and he barely mentions Coco. 
Yeah, I don't know if there's much more to say about this one. The only thing I have left is that Coco Chanel would die the year after, so. Well, good fucking riddance. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I feel like, like you said, she was just kind of like, I always kind of like, oh, it took so long for it to happen because she was like really um, touchy about it. Yeah, I mean, I think they were trying to give her the girl boss treatment, but it's like, you know, there just wasn't enough there. And meanwhile, 40 plus years later, they wouldn't learn their lesson with what's the Patty Lou poem? Uh, war paint? Uh, war paint. <laughs> well, at least neither of them were Nazis. Yeah, true. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it was not too So our last Best Musical nominee was Pearly. Opening date, March 15th, 1970. Closing date, November 6th, 1971. After 688 performances. Music by Gary Geld. Lyrics by Peter Udell. Book by Ossie Davis, Peter Udell, and Philip Rose. Based on the 1961 play Pearly Victorious by Ossie Davis. Directed by Philip Rose. Choreographed by Louis Johnson. And the synopsis is... Pearly is set in an era when Jim Crow laws still were in effect in the American South. Its focus is on the dynamic traveling preacher, Pearly Victorious Judson, who returns to his small Georgia town hoping to save Big Bethel, the community's church, and emancipate the cotton pickers who work on oppressive old Captain Cochipee's plantation. With the assistance of Ludie Bell Gussie Mae Jenkins, Pearly hopes to pry loose from Cochipee an inheritance due his long-lost cousin and use the money to achieve his goals. Also playing a part in Pearly's plans is Cochipee's son, Charlie, who ultimately proves to be far more fair-minded than his Simon Legree-like father and who saves the church from destruction with an act of defiance that has dire consequences for the tyrannical Cap'n. And it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical for Cleavon Little, Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical for Melba Moore, Best Direction of a Musical for Philip Rose, and Best Choreography for Louis Johnson. Is it? Do you think it's Louis Johnson or Lewis Johnson? My guess would be it would be Lewis Johnson. Okay, let's know. say Lewis Johnson. And it won leading actor in a musical for Cleavon Little and featured actress for Melba Moore. So yeah, this is a tough one. Yeah, no, it totally <laughs> is. And it's. I guess it was interesting to see people's different takes on it. Yeah. Because I think that some people seem to think of it as like a triumph of like black representation on Broadway. And some people think of it as like kind of like a misguided take and some people are just like it was just really difficult i mean so the facts are it was adapted from ossie davis's play he's more of an actor than a writer actually i was surprised that it was actually him because i didn't know him as a writer so he had written this play that was a satire that really played on black stereotypes and I think that's sort of where the heart of the issue is, is that that description mentions Simon Legree. That is not the first or that's not the only um, Uncle Tom's Cabin comparison that's made to these different character archetypes. So actually, Ossie Davis was not involved in the adaptation at all, but he's credited because they made very few changes to his play. Basically, mm-hmm. it, it was barely even an adaptation. It was just like his original script with songs added yeah apparently the second act there's like only like three songs yeah so in the review for so there was an encore's production in 2005 which 
we'll get into. But Ben Brantley, th- these are like a few sort of random quotes. So they're, they're not really super connected, but I think they kind of hit on all of the issues. Adapted from Rossi Davis's 1961 play, Pearly Victorious, this musical dared to present a parade of Black archetypes who seemed to have more in common with the world of Uncle Remus than that of Eldridge Cleaver. Playing with the idea of folksy Black cotton pickers down in Dixie must, in 1970, have seemed like playing with napalm. But Mr. Davis, the great actor and civil rights activist who died on February 4th and to whom this production is dedicated, knew what he was doing in telling the story of a fast-talking Black minister who outwits a plantation owner who is close kin to Simon Legree. The show's reason to be, he said, is to point a mocking finger at racial segregation and laugh it out of existence. But then he says about this production, everyone seems daunted by these songs and ponderously jokey script, which has been revised by David Ives, as if playing these characters with too much vitality might push them into dangerous and unsavory caricature. So I think that's sort of the heart of the issue. Yeah, and I do feel like, much like Applause, there is like a television movie that was made quite a number of years after this original production. But I think that there were just like moments that like it kind of went into like uncomfortable territory especially with how sort of like compelling some of the story is and like how there are really exciting elements to it I think um but you know I think that just being framed by the what it's framed by and some of the characterization is hard yeah and I think that's the problem like I think as a satire like it's sharp and it's hard like the heart and the brain is like really in the right place but like when it comes at the expense of these like very well-known black caricatures. It's kind of like, who's laughing and for what reason? Like in Walter Crow's review, he was like, I didn't like it because it wasn't, it didn't lean as hard into the stereotypes as like the original play. And it's like, your problem is that it's not offensive enough. It's like, that's not Mm -hmm. really for you to say. (laughs) But an interesting thing about it. So the reviews were pretty split. People really loved the performances and were sort of mixed on the other elements. But actually, I think either Walter Kerr or Clive Barnes revisits it after a year. When Pearly started, its audience was largely white, and the show was something of the same tourist trap that Hair, different destination but same coach, provides for its largely white, middle-class, middle-aged patrons. Yet, at the recent performance I saw of Pearly, the audience was largely black, the first predominantly black one I've ever seen at a player musical on Broadway. And that wasn't by coincidence it was actually it was kind of like the first show that like they directly marketed to black audiences and like in our musicals ourselves he writes in finding ways to bring black audiences into broadway pearly wasn't a proactive and dynamic as its title character philip rose the show's director and producer as well as its co-author hired as publicist sylvester leakes the public relations director of the bedford stuyvesant restoration corporation to generate group sales of african-american theater parties Leaks, who had extensive contracts with churches, fraternal, and social organizations, was so successful that his efforts not only helped Pearly extend its run to 688 performances, but served as a model for other producers to increase Black theater attendance. And maybe... Maybe this is a good time to talk about this article from 2005 that is a little bit long, but I want to read most of it because I think it it touches on a lot of interesting things and it has a lot of good quotes from people. So in 2005, I think this is before the Encores production. It's either right before or right after. So the guy who directed the Encores production directed a revival of it um, at the Pasadena Playhouse. And there was an article 
about his sort of mission to bring like the black musical back. So this is called Resurrecting Pearly by Jan Brinslauer. Whatever happened to the Black Broadway musical? In the 1970s and 80s, there were a slew of shows that featured African-Americans singing and dancing. Bubble and Brown Sugar, Furthermore, Mama, I Want to Sing, The Wiz, Dreamgirls, UB, Ain't Misbehavin', and more. Sometimes there were as many as five or six shows a season, and it wasn't unusual for a black musical to run profitably for years. Sheldon Epps, artistic director of the Pasadena Playhouse, where he's directing a revival of Pearly, was part of that wave. Epps' breakthrough show, Blues in the Night, opened in 1983, a musical review featuring songs by Bessie Smith, Duke Ellington, Harold Arlen, and others, sung by four archetypal characters living in a rundown Chicago hotel in the 1930s. His 1996 play on transposed Shakespeare's Twelfth Night to Swing Era Harlem, set to a score of Ellington songs. Yet by the time Play On was revived at the Playhouse in 1999, the days of many black musicals on Broadway had come and gone. Indeed, in recent years, most jobs for African-American musical performers have been found in not-so-called black musicals, but in The Lion King and Aida. Today, there are so few black plays being produced in New York that you're likely to find black actors in revivals of shows traditionally cast with white performers, such as the recently closed On Golden Pond, starring James Earl Jones or Julius Caesar with Denzel Washington. What's more, those shows were star vehicles and likely wouldn't be done absent a marquee name. Of course, it's also about the money. Most of those with the power to bring a show to New York don't seem to think there are dollars to be made. There's a myth that the black audience won't come to see black shows on Broadway, or that they won't come to see Broadway shows, period, and that the white audience is uncomfortable seeing black shows on Broadway, Epps says. In addition, there's not a black person who owns a theater on Broadway or is involved with running any of the major corporations now that are responsible for producing what gets on Broadway. Epps' conviction stemmed from a personal connection to the material and an abiding faith in Pearlie's relevance. People say, why do the show again? It's because those issues have not passed us, he says. Racism is less overt than it was, but it still exists. The lack of ownership of big businesses by black people is still with us. The need to feel good about being black is still with us. The need to define yourself, define your goals, know what you want, and don't let the racism in America stop you from getting them is still very much with us. I'm the only black artistic director of a major theater in America right now since George C. Wolfe resigned from the New York Public Theater. That's the clearest, most personal example I can give you. That's astounding to me. I don't say that with any pride. I say that with a great deal of shock and awe. The proliferation of black musicals in the 70s and 80s was a mixed blessing. Yes, there was work for African-American performers, but the majority of those musicals still kept those artists down on the proverbial farm, singing and dancing in period pieces, many set in the 20s to the 40s. That didn't go near contemporary problems. What makes Pearly different is that it's meant not merely as fun, but as social critique. So then it does a little... Summary, um, according to Davis's widow, Ruby D, the actress for whom Davis wrote the leading female role of Ludie Bell Gussie Mae Jenkins, the play started out as a serious drama, but Davis soon changed course in part because of unexpected influences. At the time Davis was writing the play, Davis and Dee were working on an off-Broadway company that included many victims of McCarthyism in the world of Shalom Aleichem. Ossie worked as a stage manager, Dee recalls. Looking at the humor of Eastern Europe, there was something in it that appealed to him, and that's what changed the tenor of Pearlie. He started it as a serious piece. Then he started to laugh, to see that there was something about racism that was maddeningly funny and stupid. He saw there was this kinship between the people of the shtetl and the people of the ghettos of the world, the capacity to take something dreadful and show the ridiculousness of prejudice and feelings of superiority, as did Shalom Aleichem. He's full of this kind of devilish fun, says Dee, who speaks of her husband in the present tense, even though he died in February. He doesn't wag his finger, he throws his head back and laughs. On a serious note, Epps sees a reflection of the politics of the civil rights movement. Pearlie, I think, is really modeled on Malcolm X, he says. In an odd way, the character Gitlow is a little bit Martin Luther King. And the debate that goes on between them is not, shall we do this or shall we not do this, but how are we going to do it? It's a tricky business trying to strike an effective balance between mere stereotypes and a critique of stereotypes. 
It's a very thin line, and you just hope people get it and will change by it, says Loretta Devine, who plays Aunt Missy Judson. I think it's hard to watch for white people as much as for us. The musical director Coleman, who has an extensive background working with such artists as Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight, Barry White, and The Temptations, felt the problems with Pearly were the lack of cultural authenticity and that it was stuck in time. When I listened to the cast album, the music was extremely dated, he said. The first thing I heard was Anglo-Saxons in the pit. I heard excellent bass players and excellent drummers, but I also heard that they were white. Pearlie has been around, but it hasn't seen a lot of mainstage production since leaving Broadway, and one of the reasons is because of the music, he continues. You're looking for Sammy Davis Jr. to come out anytime in a mod outfit. <laughs> so yeah, so there's a lot, a lot there. <laughs> yeah, so Cleavon Little, one for Pearlie. There's a little too much for me, it's too much too fast. I gotta keep my stuff together. I just uh, have to thank the Lord that I still believe in him after four years in New York. <laughs> I have to thank my mom and daddy, because they scrubbed floors for all their lives. And I have to thank my brothers and sisters in the choir, who every night turned me on, would walk me and walk me up. You know. Melba Moore won playing uh, Ludie Bell. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Thank you. So she really sort of rocketed to fame. Some of the people she was compared to in reviews are Fanny Bryce, Pearl Bailey, Dionne Warwick, Aretha Franklin, Barbara Streisand, and Billie Holiday. So I mean, she really is incredibly good in it. And something I thought was interesting is that they, you know, they had a profile of her and they talked about how originally Ludie Bell was not necessarily like a heavy singing role like they said they had only written one song for her which i'm assuming was the title song pearly which is like not a very difficult song the moon don't rise to light the sky the moon comes up just to shine on pearly pearly And then as soon as they cast her, they wrote her like the most like vocal cord shredding. <laughs> like, <laughs> but she's like amazing. She's amazing on the Tonys. She's so good. Yeah, and it was kind of amazing to see her playing like the same role like 11 years later. Yeah, she looked exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> I think she was, she was 25 at this point, so she's like 35 or 36 in the TV movie. I thought the the two musical numbers they did made the best case for themselves out of anything, anything else that was performed. They did I Got Love, and then later they did the opening number, um, which is Walk Him Up the Stairs. And it was weirdly like revived just a few years afterwards for like 14 performances. Yeah, it was directed by the same director and it had 
several um, of the original cast members reprising their roles. I don't really know what the deal is with it. It's I like almost don't even want to count it as a revival because none of these shows have been revived really with the asterisks of, of whatever's going on with this one. But I think out of all of the shows this season, this one is by far the best one, but I, it's not without its uh, its issues. Yeah, I mean, I watching the TV movie, I mean, one, I was sort of felt uncomfortable by some of the characterizations, but I thought that the story, while it was even kind of problematic in its sort of like setting and context, like was sort of like an interesting, just like a narrative aspect. I was like, oh, I'm like curious about this and like what is going to happen and understanding these characters and like the whole sort of plot of it. I mean, it definitely is like intentionally making people uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) But it is interesting. Like, you know, the more that we dig into the backstory of these shows, like that list in the beginning of that article was like, you know, included dream girls, which is like, as we know from the backstory of dream girls, like a lot of racism behind the scenes, all Mm -hmm. white creative team. And I think it's good that Sheldon Epps is like, there are no like black theater owners. There are no black creative directors like that. Like it's the pipeline problem. It's not about like necessarily having like black actors on the stage. You know, it goes a lot deeper than that. Yeah, totally. So with this season, out of the new musicals that open this season. So there are 14 musicals that open this season, and I think eight of them flopped. So Jimmy, Buck White, La Strada, Gantry, Georgie, Blood Red Roses, and Minnie's Boys, Look to the Lilies, Cry for Us All, and Park. I think at least three of them only had one performance. And it's kind of crazy because like La Strada was written by, the music was written by Lionel Bart and was like, he was like eventually ousted from it. I think Look to the Lilies or Cry for Us All was Julie Stein. So I feel like this season like represents like a third of all the pages in Not Since Carrie. So (laughs) the one thing I will say is that Bernadette Peters was cast as the clown in La Strada, which I think is a fabulous casting choice. Mm -hmm. But yeah, moving on to Tim's Play Corner. The big winner of the night was a play. Um, This was before, obviously, before um, the design awards were sort of separated between plays and musicals. So Child's Play, which opened on February 17th, 1970 and closed December 12th, 1970, Um, after 342 performances, was the big winner. Um, It was produced by old friend David Merrick. It was written by basically a a nobody up-and-comer, Robert Marasco. It was directed by Joseph Hardy, and it was nominated for Best Play, Best Actor in a Play for Fritz Weaver, Best Featured Actor in a Play for Ken Howard, Best Scenic Design for Joe Melziner, Best Lighting Design for Joe Melziner, Best Direction of a Play for Joseph Hardy, And it won everything except best play. And the synopsis is, the play centers on the rivalry between two faculty members at St. Charles, an exclusive Roman Catholic boarding school for boys based on the author's alma mater, Regis, 
So this is actually, I was kind of like, oh no, another play about like Catholic school. But this play seems like it really um, slaps. It got really good reviews. It was kind of like a classic David Merrick situation where like, I think he was just like a holy terror, the whole thing. You know, Robert Marasco was basically an unknown classics teacher at Regis, the school that he based this play off of. And, you know, it just kind of began to get some traction. And, you know, it opened on Broadway. It was basically his only successful play that he had ever written, but um, it was made into a movie by Merrick. And, you know, the success of it allowed him to retire from teaching. And, you know, he continued to write. He says the two um, influences for the play came from a newspaper clipping about a teacher who gave his kids some work to do and then jumped out the window. (laughs) and the uh, Ingmar Bergman film Frenzy, which was about a sadistics classics teacher. It's kind of got, you know, secret history vibes. Yeah, no, totally. What is it about classics that just makes people lose their minds? (laughs) You know, I feel like David Merrick really did some good with this. Like, I think a lot of people compare it to Hitchcock in the press. I think on top of it being a really good play, um, Joseph Hardy's um, staging was like, just very imaginative and there were a lot of like kind of like shock effects that were played up right and then joe milziner's scenery and lighting were great and it was like very gothic and sort of creepy and like really played into you know this kind of like haunted boarding school type of thing i liked his speech he like won for scenery and then you know he uh got up for his lighting when he was like i'm very pleased about this but i really should give credit to the man who designed the scenery. Besides that, it became a movie that was like a very troubled production. Um, and then I think after that, Joe Marasco, you know, wrote a few novels, a couple unproduced screenplays, and just kind of like faded into obscurity, which is kind of amazing. I mean, especially, I mean, not every play that is nominated for for Tony or, you know, wins five Tonys is going to roll off your tongue, but I had never really heard of him. Also, this is like a Beauty Queen of Lanann situation where it won everything it was nominated for except Best Play. <laughs> yeah, and what did win Best Play was this play, Borstal Boys, which sounds so freaking boring. It was based on a kind of like, I guess, autobiographical novel memoir by Brendan Bayhan, and it was adapted for the stage by Frank McManon, um, directed by Thomas McAnna, um, and it won Best Play. It was also nominated for Best Actor in a Play for Frank Grimes and Best Direction of a Play, but it's basically, this is like, I feel like such Tony fought, this is such a Tony Fodder play. The story is a recounting of Brendan Bayhan's imprisonment at Holsey Bay for carrying explosives into the United Kingdom with intent to cause explosions on a mission for the IRA. A young idealistic Bayhan, over the three years of his sentence, softens his radical stance and warmings to the other prisoners. You know what's funny is we did in high school we did a brendan bayhan play called the hostage that seemed to have the same plot so let me see (laughs) let me see what the connection is no it's slightly different but it seems like this is a topic that uh is big in his work i mean even thinking of something as contemporary as the ferryman like you know obviously it's a big part of history that doesn't necessarily touch on america well who needs it (laughs) just kidding (laughs) but the big kind of like hit 
crowd pleaser hit play-wise of the season was Butterflies Are Free, which ran for a few years, almost 1,200 performances, written by Leonard Gershay. It featured a Stephen Schwartz song called Butterflies Are Free, and it won Blythe Danner, a Best Featured Actress in a Play Tony, and that was kind of about loosely based on the life of attorney Harold Krentz. The plot revolves around a blind man living in downtown Manhattan whose controlling mother disapproves of his relationship with a free-spirited hippie. Blythe Danner plays the hippie. She was very hot at the Tonys, she I just want to say. She 100% was, um, and she like became like kind of the toast of Broadway, and there was a profile of her in the Times, and they were like, she's fabulous. So it was from December 7th, 1969. Um, so I guess it was from before the Tonys, but they were like, you love her on stage, and now she's about to get married to this guy, Bruce Peltrow. And they're having this <laughs> ceremony that's like half straight. I mean... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> half Jewish for his side and half Episcopalian for her side. Wow, I didn't know he was Jewish. So Gwyneth Paltrow is half Jewish. Good for her. Yeah. So it was made into a movie with Goldie Hawn playing the Blythe Danner part. And it was moved to San Francisco for the movie for unknown reasons. Um, and I think that kind of like the fun thing about it was that the like kind of controlling mother role was like kind of like a fun revolving door for a few years of like older character actresses. Eileen Heckert created the role and I think that there had been some fun replacements. And I think the only other Tony that we might have missed was Tammy Grimes, who we loved, um, was in a uh, production of Noel Coward's Private Lives, and she won Best Actress in a Play. And Noel Coward also got an honorary Tony. Yeah, should we should we talk about the honorary Tonys now yeah. to wrap it all on up? It's, it's, if that's how they wanted to wrap up their ceremony, that's how we'll wrap yeah. up ours. So they had a lot of heavy hitters getting special Tonys. For some reason, Barbara got hers in the middle, not at the end. But they basically they basically gave her like a we fucked up Tony. Please come back. <laughs> at least she's there to accept it. But she's like, joke's on you guys. I'm never coming back to Broadway again. <laughs> again. But nobody knew that yet. But maybe she knew that. But she was very thankful. And she was like, Broadway started my career, which was true. Yeah, it is true. Thank you. Oh, God. Imagine being in a hall of fame. Imagine being in a hall at all. The trouble I've had getting an apartment, I tell you. <laughs> That's another story. This award means a great deal to me because it was on a Broadway stage that my, my career really began. So to receive this honor takes me back where I came from, and that feels kind of nice. I must say that although it is wonderful to hear an audience applaud, it is especially gratifying knowing that the talented and dedicated people who make up our profession are among those applauding. Thank you very much. So then at the end, they had Noel Coward, who gave a very, like, charming and funny speech. This is my first award, so please be kind. <laughs> Lunt and Fontan came out. They look like two characters. Yeah, that, that is not my dream three, so I'll, <laughs> say, I'll say that much. You know, maybe when they were younger. And then, yeah, and then we talked about Clive Barnes and Joe Papp, um, and then... 
Lauren Bacall yells us out with Welcome to the Theater, even though it's over. I think that's it, right? Yeah, that's basically it. Oh, the only other fun thing I found was like this really um, sexy off-Broadway gay play called The Gay Liberation Play of 1969 titled And Puppy Dog Tales, but... (laughs) Yes, it was one of the highest grossing off-Broadway shows. The um, advertising image is just three men in um, white briefs. Hell yeah. Well, speaking of which, isn't this the season that O Calcutta opened also? There's a little reference and applause. That's funny because I forgot that it was referenced in what we saw. Yeah, June, June 21st, 1969. Yeah, so, you know, O Calcutta famous uh, avant-garde erotic review. <laughs> I mean, this is like the height of like the hair era where everyone's like, well, is there's anyone naked? Like, I just feel like everyone's obsessed <laughs> with nudity. Yeah. So uh, good for them, I guess. And uh, yeah, that's it for 1970. We got, we did it. Yeah. <laughs> so next time we're going to do another one episode wonder. We're going back to the fifties. 1955. So uh, the big winner of that is the pajama game. You also have Mary Martin and Peter Pan, which was, uh, you know, a very beloved VHS tape for me growing up. I'm excited to revisit. Um, And then on the play side, the Desperate Hours one, but you also have The Bad Seed, which also uh, has a great movie. Yeah, so we're going to get through that pretty quickly and easily. Compared to this season, I'm like chomping at the bit for the pajama game. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, finally, something uh, something good. The pajama game, and we have a classic uh, House of Flowers, classic Arlen score that um, I think will be interesting to dive into, even though it was a flop. All right, let's wrap it up. Okay. That's it. I'm I'm fading. I'm fading fast. <laughs> okay, so um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at mylittletonies. You can email us at mylittletonies.podcast at gmail.com. So uh, I guess uh, we'll see you later. Goodbye. Bye. Prudential's on stage has proudly presented the 1970 Tony Awards.